Uh, welcome to the Sports Science Dudes. I am your host, Dr. Jose Antonio, with my co-host, Dr. Anthony Ricci. If this is your first time listening, hit the like button and subscribe to the show. We'll cover all things related to sports science and nutrition. If you want to email us with any suggestions for guests or topics, our email is sportsciencedudes at gmail.com. That is sportsciencedudes at gmail.com. Our guest today is Dr. Guillermo Escalante. Dr. Escalante is currently an assistant dean, so he wants the money, um, and professor of kinesiology for the College of Natural Sciences at Cal State University San Bernardino. He's taught various courses, and it, well, he's got quite an extensive CV, so we'll just kind of summarize it a little. Um, he's taught many courses in exercise science and kinesiology, such as sports nutrition, uh, prevention and care of athlete, athletic injuries, principles of strength and conditioning, principles of human movement, exercise prescription, health and fitness, business management, and more. So really quite a varied background. Um, he also serves as a consultant to several businesses in the areas of fitness, sports medicine, exercise, and sports nutrition. His degrees include a doctor of science in athletic training with an MBA, which is really kind of cool because I always thought I should get an MBA. But um, anyhow, with an MBA with concentrations in marketing and healthcare management, a BS in athletic training with a bio minor. He's also a certified athletic trainer, strength and conditioning specialist, and sports nutritionist. So the dude knows some stuff. In fact, yeah, he does. he's a sports science dude. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so welcome to the show. Welcome to the show, Guillermo. Well, uh, thank you, Dr. Antonio, Dr. Richie, for having me. You know, I've, I've known you guys for, for years through the ISSN, of course, and uh, I, I'm glad that you guys have this awesome podcast together and uh, bringing some evidence-based uh, science dudes like like we all are uh, to to bring the science out and and uh, just uh, let let people know more good quality information. Yeah, thanks. I mean, uh, we're excited about the show, and in fact, I I want to start with um, there's a lot of fun stuff to talk about because you have an interesting background, not just academically, but you compete in bodybuilding. So let's. Put that aside for a while, for a little bit, and talk about a more serious subject about why. And I actually have a good friend here in South Florida, Will Brink. We've talked about why do bodybuilders seem to be dying at a young age, and not just at a young age, but it seems to be quite frequent. It's um, it's almost as if we're not even surprised anymore. It's like, wow, this is really strange. I'm sure there's a myriad of factors and you have a recently published paper. So if you could, you know, talk a little bit about that and tell the audience what you think is going on. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's uh, bodybuilding is obviously very dear to my heart and, and I've worked in many capacities in the bodybuilding circuit. And uh, yeah, this is something that, you know, I've obviously seen it over the years. And, um, you know, after so many years being in the industry, you know, in, in different capacities, I just got tired of of hearing people say it's like, you know, rest in peace, bro, rest in peace, bro. And that's what everybody says. Like, oh, so-and-so died, rest in peace, bro. And and uh, you know, and I'm seeing these guys, and you know, um, some of them are dying in their in their 20s, 30s, uh, you know, 40s. I mean, it's it's incredible. And and uh, you know, I always say, and and I I work with Rick Collins, as you guys know, and you know, association does not mean causation, but at the same time, we always have to see if there's a smoking gun, we should do some investigation. And and that's that's kind of what I see. I, I see a lot of these things occurring, and uh, um, and obviously there are, there's a lot that goes on behind the scenes. And of course, there are hereditary factors. Uh, you know, there are nutritional factors. You know, they're carrying a lot of body weight. So there's a lot of uh, different uh, covariates that are going to potentially uh, going to contribute to some of this. But nonetheless, 
there's an elephant in the room and I think we have to address it. So most recently what we did is uh, we actually looked at a uh, the autopsy reports of, of bodybuilders that died before the age of 50. Uh, so we actually just did a, uh, between 2018, 19, 20, there was, there was just a lot of more deaths, like you said, like every time you turn around, there was another bodybuilder that, that, that was dying, both men and women. We actually focus our sample on, on men. And uh, what we want, we just did a general Google search, like dead bodybuilders. Uh, and then we, we basically had a list. And from that list, we basically were able to narrow down. Uh, we found people that died of, of all different causes. Then we narrowed it down to how many died of cardio. We wanted to focus on the heart because that mm -hmm. seems to be the, the one that is most prevalent. So we were looking at cardiovascular related deaths in bodybuilding. And then we wanted to focus it to, for the wow factor uh, for guys in their 50, because it's not very typical for a man to die before the age of 50. It's just not in, in, in all athletics. Uh, so uh, as we started narrowing down the search, of course, there were people that potentially that, that, that had died that weren't in the country. So we can't get those autopsy reports very easily. Uh, we finally narrowed down the list. We were able to actually get our hands on six autopsy reports. We actually had 14 deaths that were uh, cardiovascular related events. But when we tried to get those autopsy reports, some of them were not available uh, and they were inaccessible. So we actually were able to analyze six of them and uh, we saw some pretty amazing trends. Uh, well, the first, the first amazing trend was the average age of these guys was 36 years old. Uh, so, I mean, so th these are not, not old men. And I mean, the, the youngest one was, I believe, 26 years old. Um, you know, so That's another insane. one was 30. Uh, and then, and then we have a few in the forties kind of bringing that, that average up. So we see some very young guys that are, that are passing away. Um, and then, uh, of course we were able to see the, the autopsy reports. Now I will say one cool thing that we found here was that the autopsy reports, there's actually a limitation in how the autopsy reports are done. Cause they're kind of all over the place. Some were very well done, very thorough toxicology reports, et cetera. So you, you could see a lot more. Some of them were done very vaguely. Um, and that's that we actually pointed to a paper there that actually identifies what should an what should a coroner do when they find an individual who is potentially a bodybuilder, potentially uh, has signs of uh, abusing super physiological doses of anabolic steroids so that they can go a little further so we can learn a little bit more. So that aside, uh, what we found was the average, uh, the weight of the heart was about 575 grams. When compared to the reference man, uh, it's 332 grams. So we have about a 74% wow. difference in, in okay. how much just the heart weighs. Well, over uh, a pound then too, right? Yeah. yeah, exactly. Exactly. Next, we have the, the left ventricular myocardium, uh, which was at, uh, an average of, and this is the thickness of that, it was about 16.3 millimeters compared to about 13 millimeters. So 125% bigger uh, than, than the average uh uh, individual. Uh, 100% of them had uh, left ventricular hypertrophy. 80% uh, of them had atherosclerosis, and some had different degrees of, of stenosis in, in some of the major coronary arteries there. And then the causes of death were kind of varied from uh, steroid-induced cardiomyopathy uh, to sudden cardiac dysrhythmia. Uh, we had left ventricular hypertrophy. We had hypertensive and arteriosclerotic heart disease, uh, dyslipidemia. There was a history of dyslipidemia in, in some of these guys as well. And again, the stenosis of, of the major arteries. So of course, one of the limitations we have of this study is, you know, we compared it to 
the reference man, obviously we do know that there is cardiac hypertrophy that occurs in other strength train athletes that are natural. Uh, but at the same time, yes, we do, but they're not dying either. <laughs> right. So uh, we, we really, we really have to compare that. And there was actually a recent study that I just read that's actually looking at that, uh, the natural versus enhanced bodybuilders in, um, you know, the uh, left ventricle thickness. And uh, we're, we're actually seeing some other signs, for example, ejection fraction is lower in the people that are that are uh, using the super physiological doses. Uh, so we actually see some other, uh, I'm going to say external variables that are, that are different. So besides the left ventricle being bigger in both of them, it's still significantly bigger in those that are enhanced compared to those that are not. And we also see other again, covariates that could potentially contribute more. So again, you add that to people that have the genetic predisposition to that, uh, and, and, and then now they're abusing these things, and then now you're gonna, in, instead of dying at age maybe 55 or 65 or 75, you're, you're, they're dying much younger. Yeah, well, um, the, the number you, you presented early, I don't remember what, what it was, but it was the weight of the heart. I think you had, what was the weight you said? And you compared it to the grams, reference right? 575 grams versus 332 grams. Okay, my question is this. So androgen use obviously is one of the confounders here, um, or maybe a contributing factor. Is there any data at all, if while you're sort of culling through the literature of, endurance athletes who also use androgens and obviously they have left ventricular hypertrophy but they also don't don't tend to die young so there's this confluence of well their exercise is different they're not trying to get bigger but they do use androgens <laughs> because it helps the recovery is there anything like that at all in the literature i don't think they've investigated that as much to to my knowledge but we definitely do see that but but we do see a, a difference in in uh in the type of hypertrophy that occurs, uh, and and I'm not a cardiologist, but but I've read I've read the term concentric and eccentric uh, uh, mm -hmm. uh, type of hypertrophy, which is it, it, so it's different in resistance trained athletes as it is in in the endurance uh, based athletes, and uh, one actually has more pathology than the other. The the concentric uh, uh, type actually has the the most pathology, if I'm not mistaken. So uh, yeah, it's very interesting when we actually see. Uh, some of these things out there. And, and you're right. I mean, I, I, you do see endurance athletes that are using androgens, maybe even growth hormone. Uh, so, but, but at the same time, we, we don't see them, uh, you know, dying at age average age of 36 years old. Right. I, I one thought on that too, though, I would assume that super physiological dosages might be a disadvantage as well. Um, Cause it may promote in the endurance athlete, that is, forgive me, that may promote degrees of hypertrophy, even independent of the training style, that might not be advantageous or lead to a, a weight retention that would, would that would probably inhibit endurance performance. So perhaps they keep those levels down. I don't know, Guillermo, maybe you have a thought on that or. Yeah. And I, and I think if we look at the, if we were to measure that those, I mean, I, I think there's a lot of different athletes that are that are using, you know, these these uh, these anabolics in different degrees. But of course, in the world of bodybuilding, I mean, when we talk super physiological, we're talking extreme super physiological right. where I mean, some of the guys at the Olympia level, you know, are using, you know, upwards of one and a half to three grams a week of, of these androgens yeah. compared to, you know, in the medical literature, 600 milligrams a week is 
you know, probably five or six times what you would give a uh, medically prescribed medically to to a, to a patient. Okay. So, you know, 200 milligrams a week is very high, extremely high for, and that's probably the high end dosage that a doctor would prescribe to someone who's got hypogonadism. So to take wow. three times wow. that amount is still super physiological, but for a bodybuilder, they would consider that a, oh, I'm, I'm just on low test right now. Almost clean, I would assume. Yeah. <laughs> They, they actually call that, some of them call that, that's, I'm on TRT now. I'm like, <laughs> no, that's not TRT. I'm sorry to tell you. <laughs> well, let, let's sort of go on the other side of, because uh, I think you were referencing a uh, uh, Bassine study in 1996, or and I forget how you pronounce his name. So in 1996, the landmark study, it was 600 migs of testinanthate weekly. Um and this is what I found most fascinating about that study. I think the treatment duration was 10 weeks. I don't know if you recall. Was it 10 weeks? I think so, yes. Yeah, they found, okay, so they got bigger, like triceps got bigger, quads got bigger. They had biopsy data, um, but they had no side effects. There was no mood changes. There was no roid rage. And to me, that was the single randomized controlled trial that it sort of put a nail in a coffin on the idea of roid rage, because obviously with, with any kind of drug, you're going to have, there's a dose dependent effect. Um, I did my postdoc actually with a gentleman who did most of his work on, on androgen receptor regulation. And he felt that it wasn't, it's not so much the androgen that gives you any angry behavior. It's basically, if you're a jackass to begin with, it might exacerbate you being just a bigger jackass if you're taking high dose androgen. So I'm sure you've gotten this question before. Is is there a way to take androgens or some sort of anabolic steroid, or, you know, depending on the type, whether it's enanthate or test sip or whatever, at a certain dose for a certain duration and get bigger, faster, stronger, or whatever the metric is that you want to use for that performance athlete with no side effects? Yeah, I think I think there's a there's definitely a, a an amount there that's kind of a a quote unquote sweet spot where you, you can gain some good benefit uh, without necessarily, uh, you know, getting uh, huge deleterious side effects. But I think you hit it on the nodes. It's, it's, it's those dependent and it's also time dependent. So how long are you being exposed to this? So, uh, you know, even if you're exposed at, you know, 600 milligrams a week for 10 weeks, okay. In this study, it showed maybe, you know, no, no, no deleterious side effects, but what happens at 20 weeks or 30 weeks? Right. And then I, I see now, now we may see, this crossover. Alternatively, maybe you could use 300 milligrams a week instead of for 10 weeks, maybe you can use it for 20 or 30. And, and that's what I see now. Uh, there are some, I mean, they're, they're quote unquote evidence-based practitioners uh, that are, that are out there that are pres prescribing some of this. Of course, uh, they're, they're not necessarily medical doctors, but, but they act to their, to their credit, they actually, they do, they read the medical literature and they, they actually do understand it quite a bit. And they, they present it, uh, not everybody, but there's a handful of them that, that I actually read. I'm like, wow, they're presenting some good data. And they're really kind of, I mean, they're reading studies in German and they're, they're, they're digging deep into some of right. the literature and, 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 you know, and, and my, and they actually say, it's like, Hey, I'm not a doctor. I'm not even a PhD. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm somebody, you know, I have a college degree, but I, and I know how to read science and they do, they, they, they can critically analyze the studies. You, but, you know, it's interesting, um, and I'm, I have a question actually for Tony, but some of the people who have known the most about androgen use are actually just bodybuilders uh, who have no background. And it's purely on trial and error, trial and error, trial and error, because 
you and I know those studies will not be done on, it, it, there's no IRB approval for super high dose androgen use. Yeah, exactly right. Exactly right. Yeah. So some of these newer models that are safer model use, I mean, that's kind of what the, instead of going on this blast cruise, blast cruise, you know, they're actually saying it's like, Hey, you know, you know, bring up the RPMs a little bit, you know, but, but don't redline it so much in terms right. of, so you can take a, a decent amount that's still going to give you a, a good amount of benefit, maybe take it for a longer period of time, uh, instead of going on a, on an eight or 10 or 12 week blast, um, and then and check your check your health biomarkers, right? Check your blood pressure, check your hematocrit levels, check your HDLs, check your LDLs, you know, look at all of these different biomarkers and, and see what's going on internally. And if, if you can keep those biomarkers in, in a healthy range and you can still cruise and, and get some benefit that way, uh, you know, th there is kind of that potential sweet spot. Uh, and with some of these, even the type that you're using, right? So you can maybe use a true testosterone, like you were talking about a propionate, sipionate, and anthate. There's going to be some inter-individual variability before you, you're going to maybe get some, some side effects there. Some may have side effects at 200 milligrams, some at four, some at five. And then you can maybe add another, you know, uh, uh, type of androgen, you know, whether it's a DHT derivative right. or one of these other derivatives and, and, and get similar results in just using different things. I actually want to ask you, Tony, about, because uh, we know performance enhancing drug use is prevalent in bodybuilding, but it's actually most prevalent. It's more prevalent in cycling, believe it or not, but neither one of us are cyclists. So I wanted to ask what your thoughts were on the prevalence of it in the fight sports, because if there's a sport that requires recovery, not just recovery from, you know, training, but recovery from actual traumatic damage from fighting. Now, we have data, well, sort of data. USADA, before UFC, before USADA came in, you saw a certain group of fighters. Now USADA is, you know, obviously drug testing is a big part of MMA, and I'm not sure about boxing. You would know that better. How prevalent do you think it is in the fight sports? I do think that MMA, uh, well, the UFC has done a pretty good job at regulating it. Now, some will diminishing the use, if not the use, the dosage, if not the dosage, the type of drugs, those would, I would assume, and Dr. Gearman would know better than I, those were the shorter half-life, right? Because they do get tested. I've been in the gym over and over again where USADA just arbitrarily shows up or they're weighed in the gym for the athlete. The efficacy of the testing, that could be argued, and I'm not an expert on that side. Currently, though, I think that the use, as stated at the, in MMA through the UFC, is certainly diminished. If not diminished, you could argue the athlete would have to be such an expert in beating the test that I don't know how much benefit they would be getting over time. Now, when you run those shows in different countries, as an example, where the athletes are native to that nation, the testing becomes a little bit harder to regulate. But as far as the UFC, I think they've done a relatively decent job at bringing the drug use down. Some would argue, just let them do it. I have my reservations when somebody is being punched squarely in the face about drug use and augmenting performance significantly more than it would be without the drug. Boxing, I got is a little bit more of the Wild West on that. And you'll take an athlete like a Chris Algieri, who's a WBO world champion, and I know and I'm quite confident has never used the drugs. And I'm also quite confident has competed against many in his weight class that have. 
the testing regulations or the testing criteria in boxing are almost non-existent. Occasionally, you see somebody get pulled for EPL. I don't know why that is versus an anabolic or androgen. Um, but nevertheless, boxing has a little bit more uh, of an open game in that. And also, you have to take a look at boxing, too. The body types differ significantly. So my point to that is how the, you know drugs could actually maybe to some athletes have a negative impact depending upon body structure. Adding 10, 15 pounds is not going to do anything for your tank. So in that regard, it might be negative. The, the boxers, a little bit more of that leaner, taller body, lighter, lower extremity. If they're not, they're going to be too short for their weight class. They ha may have the ability to put some size on, and I'm sorry, some strength and power from it without inducing too much hypertrophy. But last but not least, not to take too much of our time, I think we all know the ADCC, okay, uh, Abu, uh, Abu Dhabi Combat Club. Um, it's pretty open that, uh, I, I, well, I'll probably get in trouble for this one, but you're almost penalized if you don't do it. So, <laughs> and all the athletes will come straight out and tell you, yeah, I do it. So let's hey, go to the plane regulating right? boxing, being wide open, and ADCC being quite, uh, you know, it being quite prominent in those three. Awesome. Um, changing tax a little bit, and then I'm going to get to some of the questions that we sent to you, Guillermo. Um, this is more of an evolution of evolutionary question and uh it has to do with longevity and the fact that it's sort of dovetailing with bodybuilders dying young but in general large people don't live long even if it's muscle so we know that if you're obese you know lifespan is incredibly shortened but also you don't see old basketball players i mean not we're not just talking about like muscular big right right so and you're you love the sport of bodybuilding is bodybuilding in the long run deleterious to longevity if the goal is always to put on mass mass and mass well i think it it can potentially be depending on on how you go about it. i mean one of the one of the trends that i've seen in bodybuilding over the last couple of decades is uh people including myself you know people are competing a lot longer you know i'm 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 going to be 47 this year I started competing when I was uh, 20, 20, 23. So, I mean, most people started, if they started at 23, by the time they're 35, they're retired, right? Mm -hmm. Or or maybe they started at 16, 17. By the time they're 30, 35, they're, they're retired. But I, I see a trend in, in people going longer uh, for, for longer periods of time. And and I, I have, I have no, no scientific data on this, but I, I hypothesize that you know, uh, again, that the, the exposure, what we were talking about, right, dosage and length of exposure, you know, so now it's like your body can can handle being beat up maybe for for 10, 12, 15 years, it, it's pretty resilient. But now if you continue to push that envelope for, for years on end, and you have a pre genetic predisposition, and now you're continually getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger, um, I think, collectively, uh, it may have an impact, uh, you know, in, in, over time, over time. And certainly for you, Tony, since you uh, undergo hypertrophy, if you just look at a pink dumbbell, whereas me, I'd have to lift like 5,000 pink dumbbells. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so Tony's one of the few guys who's like, no, I don't need to lift more. <laughs> I no, I, I, I do everything I can to take muscle off. Guillermo, maybe you can help me and it ain't going anywhere. I'm trying to get rid of some of it. 
<laughs> yeah, that's that's awesome. I, I wish I had that problem. You're one of those guys that walks into the gym, smells the way, says, okay, I'm done. That just goes, <laughs> but uh, you look like you're putting it on pretty good my, uh, yourself, my friend. And also, I got to say one thing complimentary to, you know, you you look young and healthy. So it, to, to Dr. Antonio's point, thus far, it doesn't, you know, with the, the tension you've put on your body, the stress through training, you come across as an individual that is very healthy, where I've seen people 10 years younger than you in the sport. Ha- I don't think it's been so kind. I, I think they look a little more stressed, weathered and banged up from it. But you have the, you know, the young glowing skin and and look young and healthy. So I, I think, like you said, it's multifactorial as to what would contribute to, you know, uh, ex- expediting entropy, if you will. Right. Uh, th- thanks. Thanks for the compliment. No, I appreciate that. But, you know, and I, I do attribute that. I mean, partly to, to you know, genetics. My, my mom is 70 something. She looks amazingly young. There you go. So, you know, we, we have that oily skin that helps. That's right. <laughs> uh, I, think, but, uh, I think the three of us are qualified. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but I but I have I will say that, uh, you know, uh, I've I've always been very good at uh, looking under the hood, you know, checking with my physician on a regular basis and, you know, making sure that other things are are going. And even if things kind of go off whack for a little bit, making sure that they kind of get back on track. And mm-hmm. uh, so I, I, I'm i a big advocate of that to, to make sure you do that. And you got, I mean, even though I'd say I'm probably bigger than the average individual, I'm, I'm also not a you know, I'm five foot five, five foot six, uh, five foot six with shoes on, I like to say. So, uh, you know, I'm about 190, 195 in, in, in my off season. I think the heaviest I've been is maybe 230, but that was pretty wow. chubby. But I've never really gotten to that extreme where some guys my height are, you know, right. off seasoning it, at the, you know, at, the, at the, the big, big time pros. You know, they're off seasoning it at 220, 230, you know, and they're competing at, you know, 210. 205 wow. at my height competing so, at that God. yeah i mean it's 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 a lot it's so that that extra 20 30 pounds of mass is is a big difference yeah, yeah that's that's a lot of mass let's let's let's